What would you do if you got scammed? Would you suffer in silence or would you do something about it? Well, I got scammed once and this is the story of what I did. I'm Justin Sales, the host of The Wedding Scammer, a true crime podcast from The Ringer. And for seven episodes, we're hunting a con man, a guy with a lot of aliases, a guy who's ruined a lot of weddings. And with the help of some friends, I just might be able to catch him. Listen to The Wedding Scammer starting October 17th. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older, 18 and older in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Whether it's taking all your little ones to their sporting events or everybody getting together and taking a ride to the beach, the all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped for any adventure. With features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud or standard third-row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Hello and welcome to Group Chat. I am Justin Barrier. Joining me, a couple of goat lifers, Rob Mahoney, Big Waz. Rob, have you recovered from last week's episode yet? I'm working on it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm chugging Pedialyte. I'm, I'm really just trying to get my hydration levels back up, to be honest with you. Podcasting takes a surprising amount out of you. Yes. Much smaller episode today, Waz. Yeah, thankfully, uh, I, I like the idea of less work or breaking up the work. I, 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 mm. I, I'm a fan of that always. We still get the work done, but we just do it in chunks. And yeah, it's just nice to be back in the swing of things. I'm getting yelled at by Spurs fans on the internet. Uh, it feels like 2015 again. Um, so yeah, super excited. I will say a surprising number of people have commented that they listened to that whole ass episode. And to all the group chat sickos out there, we we appreciate you. Respect. I, you know, you're, chat you're, heads. Re- you're Respect. really putting in the work if you're listening to two and a half hours of us. It might take us two and a half months to get back to like the Detroit Pistons. So you have to get your fill in while you can. <laughs> Fair. Um, but we're back on our power rankings bullshit. Uh, today we have part two But fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, depending on the type of listener you are, we are breaking this episode into two halves. So part two will be the next five teams, uh, starting with number 20, and then we'll pick up the next five uh, right after that. Both episodes, I believe, are going up on the same day. So you'll probably get part two first thing in your feed on Wednesday, and then maybe later check for for part three there. Or um, if you're listening to part three, we're back here, and we're going to start from from the teams that you missed. Uh, Same drill. Basically, we ranked every team, averaged them out. Isaiah Blakely, who didn't make it to this podcast, unfortunately, because he was too fatigued from editing the first one. Um, he broke the ties. Uh, we'll do general talk, existential question, 
or essential question. I don't know if I've ever really nailed down which one it is. Uh, and then swing player for each team. Did I miss anything? No, sir. The fact that you never nailed down which one it is, I think, makes it an existential question on your part, if not these teams' part, I think. Like, what are you, what are you doing if not nailing down that question? Uh, have you looked at the doc? <laughs> There's like 10,000 words by the end of this is going to be in here just on factoids about some of these teams. How dare you besmirch the outline? Okay. Ugh, all right. All right. But let's start with number 20, a team that did ultimately need to be broken up with a tie. So this is the Utah Jazz. They were a three-way tie with the Raptors and the Bulls uh, who are t- rounding out our last episode. Um the Jazz are an interesting team because much like the Nets, they did have a two sides of a season last year where they started 19 and 16, started much better than that to the point where I think people were wondering if they might win the West at a certain point. Um, but they ended the season 18 and 29. Obviously, guys got traded before the season. Then a bunch of deadline guys got traded. It's pretty much a new team at this point. Um I was much higher on the Jazz than you guys. And my case for that is there's just so much competence up and down on this roster. To me, this reminds me a lot of Danny Ainge's Celtics run when Brad Stevens came in. They sucked for the first season, but there was just like too much good stuff to be too bad for so long. Um, Rob, what do you think about that? Do you think that there are similarities there? Am I missing anything with the comparison there? Or is this a team that's like, you can only be so bad when you have John Collins, Laurie Mark, and et cetera playing so well for you? I think there is a lot of competence. Where I would draw the line between you know, this version of the Jazz and those Stevens teams you cited, you know, those or Danny Ainge teams you cited really, is where's the defensive competence, Mm. right? That's the question for the Jazz is like, how does this group of players make meaningful defensive improvement, especially when it's hard to say who's even going to be here in six months, much less for the long haul. Like this is still very much a team in a transitory state. I think you can pin down a couple of guys who are real keepers here, who are players to build around. But other than that, I think a lot of these players are going to be on the table in trade talks and negotiations, certainly in rumors for guys like us trying to dish, like deal them here and there. But otherwise, you just look overall at what the rotation looks like. And where are the stoppers? Where are the guys who are creating a lot of turnovers? Where are the guys who are really wreaking havoc other than Walker Kessler turning people away at the rim? That's kind of like the one bedrock that they have. And maybe that'll answer a lot of these questions in time as he grows into being the kind of defensive player he can ultimately be. He's a really, really high-level defensive prospect. But otherwise, it's a lot of offense. And I'm not sure that the offense is quite enough given just like the volume play of some of their guards in particular. Yeah, I think where, and listeners can drink at home, my man John Collins kind of slots in for these guys is that he does bring some much-needed athleticism and defensive versatility, rebounding when he's right. Like John Collins has in brief stints throughout his whole career, shown flashes of not just competence, but like borderline brilliance at, you know, being good at on help side, being a great switch defender, you know, being a, 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 a really good rebounder, right? In, in in stints. I think the reason why he's no longer in Atlanta is that it's never been consistent. That along with the shooting after the wrist injury, um, is why the, the Utah Jazz were kind of able to take a flyer on a guy who Atlanta just basically gave away. So I think he's going to try to address some of those those needs that Rob just pointed out. Um, and to bring it back to last year, one, uh, Will Hardy, the head coach, gained a lot of my respect 
uh, just they they just were prepared, and the way that they attacked teams like this team offensively rarely had less than four shooters on the floor at one time, and just just by that fact alone, um, you looked at they outperformed the you know the sum of their parts, right? And so Will Hardy. I think he's one of the better coaches in the league. He proved that last year with the Jazz's performance. And, you know, but it'll be interesting to see because last year, I think what marked the beginning of that season was a lot of professional pride, you know, from guys like Conley, from guys like um, Jordan. What's what's his freaking name? Clarkson. Jordan Clarkson. I was about to call him Paul. Jordan Clarkson. (laughs) Um, Similarities. These guys, and that's before we even get into Larry Markin in his breakout year, right? And so I wonder if they'll have that same professional pride because a lot of people did write them off as a clearly tanking team, a team that was supposed to do bupkis. And they they were one of my favorite stories of the season last year. Well, should we talk about Laurie then? Because yeah. he is who I have down for the essential slash existential question here. Um, is Laurie Markin's breakout in air quotes, sustainable. Because on the one hand, he made his first All-Star team, uh, was very much in the thick of it for All-NBA. I think I had him on my final ballot. I think Rob was very much a non-believer. And so I I asked you, um, how much are you believing in a guy (laughs) who took massive leaps in in terms of production, just even just notoriety in the league? It seems like he became probably the guy a lot of people expected him to be as a rookie and then just completely fell off of the face of the earth in between. First of all, to clear my name, I believe we were doing like a conferenceless all-star exercise and he got nudged out <laughs> by some Eastern Conference talent. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. Although I think mm. I put I think I put Kyrie Irving and that was my fault. So I, I take full <laughs> responsibility for that one. As for Lowry, I, I'm a little flummoxed by this question. I think this sentiment is out there. Can we trust what Lowry Markinen did? Like, can he replicate this incredible season he had? My overwhelming thought on it is, why wouldn't he? Because this is a guy who basically played all last season just by staying moving and taking what the defense gave him. And he's really big and he's a really good shooter and that's enough. And so if he keeps doing those things, and I think we have every reason to suspect he will, he's going to have another really good season. He's shown he can play the three on more or less a full-time basis play with all kinds of bigs, all kinds of players, as long as the players around him know how to move and know how to move the ball. And I think that's kind of, you know, more or less the same DNA is there for the Jazz. There are a couple of wild cards, you know, Colin Sexton. We'll see kind of how he fits into this mix and whether he's going to be a guy who's willing to participate in that kind of offense or not. It could get a little gummier as they're just trying to like figure out what the right combinations of players are. But overall, that competence you talked about, Justin, a lot of that comes down to guys who can pass, shoot, and dribble. Guys who can keep things flowing. And that really feeds into what Lowry does well. Yeah, I think I think that's the case was there is that things are a little bit more difficult perhaps than they were for him last year. One, because there aren't the Mike Conley type caretakers Mm -hmm. looking to get everybody involved. It's a lot of just like heat check, Colin Sexton, Jordan Clarkson, even Keontae George. We don't know who, what it'll be as a rookie, but he seems like kind of an energy scorer. That's one. And then was the front court, it seems pretty crowded these days. There's a lot of four or five types. Uh, John Collins went from being kind of miscast as a four who was doing all the hustle stuff to being in a Utah jazz situation where there's probably even more competition for those minutes. A lot of bigs out there, Kessler, et cetera. Um, so my question is like, is Laurie at the three? Like, does that work with whatever else is they've assembled around him? 
I think it can work. Again, so long as there's a, a base level of competent shooting around, I think he does need to play with a space floor. He's not like some type of wing who in type spaces. I, so just to go back to last year, I think he proved that he's a credible wing player. Right? I think there was a lot of questions in the past about, is this guy just a glorified stretch four or is he a legitimate wing, put the ball in his hand, let him, you know, navigate pick and rolls, let him do that kind of thing, create from the outside. Uh, I think he proved that he's a credible wing. Now, is he an elite wing where he just soaks up possession after possession, no matter what the spacing is like and, you know, sort of the character of the lineups that he's in? It doesn't matter that he can do that. I'm not so sure about that, but I don't think Will Hardy's going to make him do that. So I don't think he's going to be asked to do things that he's not competent at. That's what the best coaches do. They put their players in position to always be doing the things that they excel at. So I don't see why he won't be put in those same positions. I think there's enough here um, in terms of uh, other people who can play make with the ball, um, other people who can generate some gravity for themselves, right? I think Jordan Clarkson last year, his pull-up game was was a little bit of a revelation, right? Like, the, the, the idea that you had to... <laughs> you couldn't play a drop coverage on Jordan freaking Clarkson. Like, that's opening up stuff um, for, for other people, Laurie included. And so, I think because of the coaching and the personnel is still such that the system that they played on offense can still be mostly replicated from last year. Yeah, what makes Lowry so effective is that he is low maintenance in that way, right? He's a, he's a through-line player where as long as you run your stuff, the ball will find him. You don't have to clear out for him. You don't have to ISO for him. You don't have to dedicate possessions to getting him the ball. It will organically turn out that way if everyone is doing what they're supposed to do. And that is where we'll see the professional pride that was cited, like whether that comes in or not. Like there's a very fine line between we are being disrespected as a team and I am being disrespected as a player and I need right. to prove something, right? Like that's where honestly Jordan Clarkson, for as much as we have bagged on him over the years, I thought was really effective for the Jazz last year, right? It was in walking that balance between playmaking and scoring that he had never really been able to do before. And so there were enough of those promising turns up and down the Jazz roster where it really worked. It's not necessarily guaranteed everything is going to fall into place in quite the same way for Utah's overall offense. But even if it doesn't, it's not really Lowry who's at fault for that. Like, he's still going to play his game. He's still going to get really good looks. He does need some things provided for him in terms of spacing and flow and things like that. But he's shown that if you give him even the bare minimum of those things, he can be a really effective player. Yeah, and that's where the... Ainge Celtics comp seems to kind of divide there because the main difference between the Celtics teams that were just crawling into the playoffs and the ones that ultimately took off there before the Kyrie Irving trade was Isaiah Thomas. And while Laurie Markkinen seems like that type of caliber of player, like fringe All-NBA, obviously IT ultimately did make All-NBA, like Thomas was a bottle rocket on offense. You could just make magic happen, whereas it seems like Laurie typically is the end result or the end product of this like beautiful offensive just design, right? Um, anything else with the Jazz that we're missing here? Do you want to go to the swing player, Rob? Yeah, I think we can swing. And it, again, all these conversations are related because it's a matter of like who gets the ball and how and when. And for me... The big swing player is Colin Sexton. Played 15 games mm -hmm. for the Jazz last season. And the overwhelming question about him in his career to this point is, is, is this guy good? 
Is he a good NBA player or is he a player who comes in and has the capacity to put up 20 points a game? Those are not always the same thing. Certainly within the context of how the Jazz play, how you get your 20 points per game is pretty important if you're Colin Sexton or how you get whatever his average ends up being, 18, 16, however, however much of a factor he ends up being as a creator. I think it would be good, though, for Utah at this stage just to get a little bit of clarity in its overall guard rotation. You know, we've seen this be just kind of a roulette wheel of point guard options. I think the idea that I can't get out of my head with Sexton is flashing back to what he showed at the tail end of his Cavs career, playing with Darius Garland, playing a role, not overstepping it, knowing exactly when it was his time to be a killer versus when it was his time to be a spacer or, you know, just drive and kick, move the ball, like keep things going. Maybe there's too much of the same thing between him and Clarkson being on the same team on like a full-time basis. And we'll have to see how the construction of the team holds up with all that. But there's a lot to be sussed out in Sexton spot specifically, as far as is he going to be what this team needs on any kind of even midterm basis, much less a long-term one. Yeah, uh, again, uh, and just to sound like a broken record, it's John Collins for me because if he makes himself into the type of guy that they got to play 32 minutes a game, then this trade is a steal, and it's because he's doing all of these things sort of on the fringes, right? The offensive rebounding, the transition, the defensive Swiss Army knife, the stuff that doesn't get you noticed, quite frankly. Like, if he's doing those things for the Jazz consistently and he's forcing them to give him 32 minutes um, a game or so, I think he he becomes the swing player. He swings the type of team we're looking at if he's that kind of guy. If he's not, then ultimately the the Hawks were right about him and, and, and it made sense to get off of his deal and ultimately quit on the potential of his progress. I love what you brought up with Collins too earlier was about the athleticism and the dynamism being something that Utah needs. Because honestly, this is a very different player, but they've really missed some of that in their forward spots since trading Jared Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. And Collins isn't going to be quite the same kind of defender, but between how athletically he plays, you know, Taylor Hendricks, we haven't brought up yet, the lottery pick that Utah just brought in for their front court, another guy they're going to have to find time and minutes and, and touches and opportunity for. But those are the kinds of like flexible, athletic, versatile, wild cards you need if you're going to play Lowry at the three, right? If, if you're going to accept that the guy we're playing at the three is not necessarily a straight rim, like quick twitch attacker, this is what we need out of those other spots. We need guys who really have a floor game, who really have the ability to attack closeouts, the ability to like make dynamic plays in space. And we'll see if Utah's front court can ultimately hold up to that because there is there is a nice kind of... It, a mix of, of front court players and player types here, if not necessarily ones that fit completely perfectly. All right. Well, since we're talking about John Collins, uh, let's move to number 19, the Atlanta Hawks. Um, Waz, can we do a, a, a Waz Hawks check-in here? Like, where's the optimism meter based on bird sounds? Is it more of like a caca or is it more like a full-throated, just like eagle uh, breathless, <laughs> just ah. What, what, what sounds do pigeons make? That's more that's of a coup, really, for me. Because because <laughs> it's pretty good. Because for me, the Hawks thing ultimately, and I've said this over and over on our show, it boils down to Trey Young and the type of basketball he's going to be willing to play. I just don't think it's been proven that 
his style is very inspiring to teammates. While it can be efficient and Trey Young can put up all-star level numbers in the process, ultimately, I don't think it's a unifying style of play. I don't think it inspires guys to go to extra mile on defensive rotations or crashing the boards or setting extremely hard screens and then rolling, not knowing whether or not they're going to get the ball or not, just because it's going to make the defense react. I'm not convinced of that, right? Like, I would really love to see Trey Young just play a different style of ball. I don't know that he will. It doesn't, I don't think there's been any indication that he's going to be, you know, the guy that comes off of the 35% usage, usages that he's used to, just dominating play, taking pull-up 40-footers whenever he feels like it. Like, there's no real rhyme or reason other than Trey Young's individual brilliance to what they did on offense. A lack of continuity, you know, um, if you will, to, to borrow a phrase from the internet. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very skeptical of the prospects of this team. Even if I like a lot of the individual pieces, like I'm into DeJounte Murray. I'm really into Onyeka Okongwu, right? I loved what A.J. Griffin flashed last year. You know, I'm still a Bogdan Bogdanovich when he's right, when his body's right. I think he's an incredible, you know, tertiary player. But I just Bogey don't boys see over here. Bogey boys for, for life. <laughs> I just don't see how it's going to come, come together for this group with Trey Young just doing his Trey Young thing for the umpteen time in a row, Rob. And I would understand if some Hawks fans out there are just like rolling their eyes at us about like, oh my God, we're talking about Trey Young style of play again. But I would posit, what else are we supposed to talk about? Because yeah. nothing else with this team has materially changed other than they lost some pretty good players, headlined by John Collins. Otherwise, well, mostly the same group, and you get a full season of Quinn Snyder. I guess that is the, the yeah, biggest material difference. Yes. But other, otherwise, like you have the same fundamental problem, which is that a Trey Young team historically has not had the easiest time making itself more than the sum of its parts. And maybe the synergy between Trey and Quinn Snyder will be enough to kind of get that sort of thing done because there are some ways in which Quinn historically has helped, for example, install a little bit more of a three-point centric offense in Utah, really get the engine going as far as like just getting the attempts up, which is something that Atlanta badly needs to do. You can see some of like the defensive potential with this group in terms of especially at the forward spots, like some some good length, some good flexibility, some things that in theory should work. Like Jalen Johnson was probably the single Hawk who improved the most after Snyder took over last season. He's going to play a part coming off the bench for them. And yet there's just something defensively with Atlanta that feels kind of flimsy, right? The idea of like, oh, we're going to play DeAndre Hunter and Sadiq Bey so much at the 3-4 you know, Clint Capella for as good as he is as a rebounder, even still not really the all defensive guy that he used to be is, you know, persistently fighting injury and the threat of injury, of course. And then just kind of like what they've been able to, to rearrange in terms of like the one, two, three spots, like between Trey and DeJounte Murray and like trying to get Bogdan in there as much as you possibly can when he's healthy. I, I just don't trust this team to be much more than mediocre. And, and here's the, here's the thing. And we've talked about Dame Lillard a lot on this show. But just remember the CJ years. CJ was able to make himself into a person, a guy, a freaking borderline max contract guy while playing his entire career next to Dame Lillard, one of the best on-ball players in our league. 
Why is that? Because Dame was willing to sacrifice certain parts of his ball dominance to watch another guy ascend to that. Like, you got to be willing to do that. You got like you got to be willing to let somebody else hold the baby, you know? Like, look how well that worked. Well, I mean... I mean, they got to the Western Conference Finals. First of all, it worked too well. (laughs) They kept CJ McCollum for too damn long. They thought he was too damn good. Yes, probably. To be honest. Neil Um, Olshay did. Well, yes, Neil Olshay did. So what what I'm saying is, like, we need to see Trey be willing to do that. Be willing to watch others succeed in this offense. Well, I, I think Rob kind of brought up the key part of this is how much can Quinn Snyder reimagine what is already there? Because on, on the one hand, maybe there is are just like fundamental tweaks you could do to the system. The three-pointers is one thing uh, that I was highlight, going to highlight as well is just because they were 28th in attempts last year overall. And that includes the pre-Quinn era. But there's also kind of this divide happening yet again with the Hawks where they almost have two classes of team or two eras of of rosters where you have the older guard that they went out and acquired on the free market. You got the Murrays, you got the Bogdans, you got the Clint Capellas. And then you have this new class, say by the bell, the new class where it's all young guys who are picked later in the first round, but they do have some promise. And so I guess the question, Rob, is do any of these young guys really inspire you enough to be like, actually what we need is a youth movement or should this team be thinking these guys are the fodder for a trade? Because what we actually do need is like another star caliber Siakam style player to just throw in the mix here. I mean, the trouble with a Siakam-style player is it really only makes sense if you trust that Trey will let him play in the way Waz described, right? Like, if you trust in that part of your process, then sure, it makes sense to package some stuff together and see who you can get. Otherwise, I think you're more or less kind of locked into this group at this point. Like, there's a lot of draft capital already out the door. You've invested a lot in this version of the team. I'm not saying you can't make any moves, but that's where you're hoping some of these young guys or younger guys pop in ways that they haven't yet. You know, a little more consistency from A.J. Griffin, for example. You're hoping Kobe Bufkin comes in and makes a difference right out of the gate, even though, you know, you're you're already kind of flush with guards on this team. But, like, those are good problems to have if you have more good players than you can reasonably find opportunities to play. The Hawks could use some of that again because, honestly, for as well-stocked as they once were with prospects, they're looking a little thin at this point. They're looking like they don't have a lot of like options in terms of flexing out different kinds of lineups. The one exception to that being, do you play Capella or do you play Okongwu, right? That's the kind of like passing of the guard. Is that the the expression? The passing of the baton? The changing of the guard. That's the one. Changing (laughs) of the guard. Passing of the baton that we've all been waiting for. But it's also kind of funny because like Clint Capella has been around for a million NBA years. He's 29 years old. You know, it, it's not like he's That's well crazy. past his prime at this point. He's still a good nuts. NBA player, if not exactly as good yeah. as you need him to be. He does get hurt a lot. But so we're, we're waiting for the Okongwu takeover at some point. I don't know if that's coming this season or not, but otherwise, most of the quote-unquote old guard for the Hawks, those guys are like 25 years old. The except, <laughs> you know, Bogdan is the one guy who is much older than you think at 31. Would make sense right. with other contenders in a potential trade if they can't kind of find what his natural fit is with this group. But otherwise, it's going to be a blend of those two generations of Hawks basketball. Yeah. I, I don't know. It just seems like something needs to happen with this team. They need to pick, pick a direction. And unfortunately, they've already committed to Trey long term. And unless you're basically just 
John Collins style dumping him, you're probably reimagining the next wave of this team with Trey in mind. And so I, I don't know what to do here. Let's pause on unfortunately. Like we've said some pretty negative things about Trey Young already during this segment. Trey Young is one of the most talented playmakers in the NBA. Yes. Are you going to zag on your own take? I'm not (laughs) zagging. What I'm saying is, even if he does play selfishly, that guy is still really freaking good. Yeah. Even if he only does the exact thing we've seen him do so far, that guy is really freaking good. It's just not championship level basketball. So, this is the thing, too, about. Trey Young, right? There's players that I watch that just don't see the game, right? And so to ask them to be these, you know, I think about some of the guys that have gone through Golden State system <laughs> and it's just like this, the fit is just not there. You have to see the game in a certain type yeah. of way to, to play Golden State style. Trey Young sees the game. Shout out to game. Kelly Oubre, a.k.a. Tsunami Poppy for his, his <laughs> legendary warrior stint. Trey Young is a guy who sees the game quite clearly. Like, this guy has an advanced level, PhD level understanding of NBA offenses and the way defenses want to attack them. So I don't see why he can't learn how to do something different that is also effective. That's what it is. Like, these are things that I see that Trey Young possesses that I'd like to see him go out and just do. You know, so that's what I'm really saying. I believe in the guy's talent. Like, I really do. But I do think he needs to deploy his talent in a different way than he has in the past. Without a doubt. Yeah, and that's why if I had to lean one way or another, I would probably lean toward the splashy trade, which does mean getting rid of some picks pretty far out there at this point because they still owe uh, some based on the Murray trade. And also, like, the the collection of young guys are interesting. I'm not sure if a lot of them swing your season one way or another. Sadiq Bey, I've always been a fan of, and presumably he starts and Bogdan comes off the bench, but um, we'll see there. He needs to get paid in the summer, too. But, like, that's why I think, like, a Siakam, for instance, makes sense, if only to just optimize what you already have here. You're committed to Trey, and if you get someone in there who probably deserves to have the ball in his hand more than like just drink at home. You get Trey young a little bit more off the ball, hopefully, or maybe you just force it to happen because Yakum comes in with such uh, like a, a superstar persona that he demands that. And then Trey young maybe concedes, but a lot of this is just coming down to Trey young, not being a jerk. And it's weird to say, but it, it, this is the same thing we've been talking about pretty much since they had the big 2020 run in the playoffs. Yeah, we're bumping into a causality question, which is, does Trey Young not pass the ball to his teammates because he doesn't think they're actually that good? Or are they like limited in what they're allowed to do because he doesn't pass them the ball? Yeah. I would guess it's mostly him <laughs> because like, it's not like he's been playing with bums for the past few years. Jonathan Murray was like a fringe all-star triple-double guy right before he came in. But yeah, maybe, maybe there is a certain thing where like, if you come in with multiple all-stars, all of a sudden you demand a certain respect. But um, swing players, anyone? Yeah, it's a Kongu for me. Uh, you guys mentioned that maybe he'll step in and finally wrestle the job away from Clint Capella. I think, yeah, that's, that's what's got to happen. Because again, when he's right... He plays with a level of force and just effort and motor that 
isn't often replicated, you know, <laughs> throughout the rest of the lineup, right? Like, he brings something so unique to what they do. Um, and again, somebody who's been nice with rim protection, nice with rebounding in his, his best stints. And again, he moves his feet. He can be that versatile type of big that we talk about that's so needed in the modern NBA. So, Akangu is the guy that I watch. If he's able to make Clint Capella an afterthought, then, you know, we're talking about youth, dynamism, athleticism, all sprinkled throughout this entire lineup. You know, DeJounte Murray included in that. DeAndre Hunter included in that, right? Um, and so, yeah, he's the swing guy for me when I watch this team. I think that is the operative phrasing is, like, make Clint Capella an afterthought. And that's what we've been waiting for. You know, this isn't a case where the team has been clutching its veteran too closely and keeping the young guy down. Like, Akangu has had chances and windows when Capella's been out to really take that spot and make it his own. And he's played well, certainly well enough to entice fans of the game like us and people watching from far. And God knows people with the team who are just waiting for him to take over in that way. But he hasn't been quite steady and consistent enough in the ways that they need to demand that spot yet. And that that's the sort of transition that they need in terms of what their center position is ultimately going to look like long-term. I think... If we're talking swing players, us bogey boys can reconvene yet again. <laughs> There's just such a difference for the Hawks when Bogdanovich is not only available but healthy. And when he's when he is looking right, when he is playing his spot, that makes them a very different team and a much more successful one. I think the way he pairs well with either Trey or DeJounte makes him a pretty important piece for this team. I just wish it felt more viable to play all three of those guys together. And when we saw that on the floor last season... It was a total defensive disaster. It was one of those things that conceptually you think, oh, maybe DeJounte can shift up, can guard, you know, cover whoever they small. need him to cover. Too small. Not as interested in being that kind of player anymore, frankly, now mm. that he's a star. Like, just, that's mm. just not what he conceives of his role being, and it's pretty clear in terms of how it presents on the court. If that could change in whatever formulation that is, I'm not putting blame on DeJounte specifically, but between those three guys, if they can make it work where they can play together, that is a huge deal for this Hawks season. And if not, Bogdan Bogdanovich is just a very logical trade piece that could help a lot of teams, that could entice a lot of teams, that's going to be very attractive. We've already seen him, you know, the Bucks already attempted to acquire him once. There will be teams in that milieu who will certainly try it again. Uh, and the Hawks will be able to get back, I think, some, some players of real value for him if it ends up going that way. Yeah, I was looking up a stat for a blurb I was doing on Anthony Simons, and I believe it was three-point percentage over the past three years at volume, which I think the cutoff was seven, so already an arbitrary endpoint, but we'll just go with it. Yep. But it was Simons, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry, Bogdan Bogdanovich. The big four. <laughs> so, that's, that's the Mount Rushmore right there. That's right. Yeah, I'm sure it was helped by the fact that he doesn't play as often as those guys. But yeah, this guy can be a very good player. It probably would have had a much more successful career at this point had the trade gone through to Milwaukee. But uh, yeah, he probably is due for uh, relocation soon for both parties. It seems like it would be best for both sides of it. The NBA season is almost here, so make sure you're ready for tip-off with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. New customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place your first $5 bet. That's $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. From the championship odds to player awards, FanDuel has you covered. For me, I'm eyeing two bets in particular. First, Bam Adebayo for Defensive Player of the Year. 
For one, Defensive Player of the Year is always up for grabs. There's not a clear front runner. You can eye any number of candidates. I'm looking at a guy who, look, how quickly we forget. Bam at a bio and the Heat or a defensive powerhouse. He feels like he could be a real factor there, especially with so many teams in the NBA skewing offense first. The Heat don't cut corners on that end. Also, the Charlotte Hornets, who you may not watch at all this season, they're going to win more than 30.5 games. They have a veteran team. They're returning a lot of players from injury. LaMelo Ball is the real deal. And Steve Clifford as a coach always gets his teams to competency. I think those are two great picks. But if you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of futures like win totals, player stats, awards, conference winners, and more. And FanDuel is now live in Kentucky. So download the app now and take advantage of their great special offers and boosts to celebrate. Visit FanDuel.com slash RingerNBA and make every moment more with FanDuel, the official sportsbook partner of the NBA. Must be 21 or older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 p.m. and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two for five dollar chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's two for five dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Speaking of teams that probably need a relocation for one of their main players, the Minnesota Timberwolves, who I have to say, uh, when I was doing the rankings, I kind of lumped them into the same sort of Western Conference tier as the Pelicans and the Thunder. And ultimately, I, surprisingly enough, came out with the Timberwolves perhaps being the most steady of them, the one that I think I can count on the most which might be surprising because I also don't think Cat Gobert is long for this world. Uh, if only like in the playoffs, I th- it, maybe it will make it to that point. But at some point, I just I, I think that has to break up. But having said that, clearly this team is good, as we saw in the playoffs without Nas Reed, even without Jaden McDaniels. Uh, and clearly, Anthony Edwards looks like a rocket ship who's going to take off. And so, Rob, I'm a little surprised in myself that... I look at this team, I'm like, this is pretty good. And if anything, I, I believe in them perhaps more than some of these other young upstarts trying to make the climb into the sixth range in the West. Well, I think some of that is just the overall level of talent. Even if it doesn't fit just so, there's so much here to recommend, to trust in individually that you kind of end up talking yourself into the collective. But you're right about what the Wolves showed in the playoffs in particular. And I think what's interesting about it is they really gave the Nuggets one of their best runs over the entire course of the playoffs. And they did it specifically because they had the two bigs 
and the flexibility to either put Towns or Gobert on Jokic, I think did some interesting things. Plus, you got little flashes from Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who's going to be a big part of this season's team. You know, obviously you have Jade McDaniels going out in infamy, but a guy who, who's going to have to <laughs> step up in a major way for the Wolves going forward and be an all-defensive presence for them on the wing in a way that Anthony Edwards maybe theoretically could be, but might not always have the attention to detail to be. So there's there's so much here overall that they absolutely deserve being in this kind of plumb middle of the ranking. How you parse all these like kind of middling Western teams, like potential play-in level teams from one another is really just kind of a matter of taste. But there is zero question the Wolves are going to be good. It's just a matter of how good. Yeah, uh, this stuff is, these these questions are going to be answered on defense to me between guys like Anthony Edwards, Jaden McDaniels, and Rudy Gobert. And where that runs into a bit of a snag is that they have to have this level of defensive altruism in a way um, <laughs> because of the shortcomings of Carl Anthony Towns. Like, I really wonder how many NBA players are willing to give themselves up on defense because Carl Anthony Towns can't do it. You know, like, it's one thing when it's Jokic, who is one of the greatest offensive players the league has ever seen, um, one of the most selfless guys the league has ever seen, clearly has endeared himself to all of his teammates, you know, to bring in guys that are like, yo, I'm making these sacrifices on defense around Joker's shortcomings because of all of the things that I just mentioned. Besides his actual greatness, those sort of intangibles that we mentioned, like the people part of this, like, are, are Anthony Edwards and Jaden McDaniels going to sell out defensively to make their team competent, if not really good, which I think they have the capability of doing with the parts that they have in the collective defensive talent, you know, because they know that Carl Anthony Towns just can't get it done. It's just incapable of getting it done, particularly at the four, which he is so ill-suited to play defensively. You know, that's what I wonder about. That's where I wonder if they have the management, the leadership to bring that kind of thing together. But on talent, they should be damn good. I don't, I don't see why they shouldn't be one of the better teams in the West. Well, so defensively last season, they were actually better with Townsend Gobert both than with just Gobert. Like the starting lineup worked to an extent. <laughs> like let's let's put it, let's put it, let's put it, let's put it, <laughs> it in Worked to an extent. The defense worked, right? They were a top 10 defense last season. That was what made them a pretty solid team overall. To me, the question is, how are you putting players around them? Because we saw last year, Kyle Anderson plugged in at the three a lot. That's a really good defensive player in addition to Jaden McDaniels. He also played a lot of four for them too. But when you look at their bench now, you know, Shake Milton is going to have a real chance to play backup point guard minutes for them. Jordan McLaughlin, mm. like, bless him. I think there's a lot of things to like about his game. He's I like just him, a, but he's 5'10". He's, he's, a, th- he's like, a third guard. Like, yeah. it, that's just what it is. So Shake Milton is going to have a chance. Nikhil Alexander-Walker, as I said, is going to have real minutes. Troy Brown Jr., another addition for them on the wing. Those are three guys who are all Laker like... Legend. In, <laughs> Laker legend. Troy Brown Jr. <laughs> Uh, some like frenetic energy players in a way, like a lot of length there, a lot of potential activity, not a lot of stability when you're talking about, oh, we have this awkward front court fit. Who are the wings and guards we're going to plug into this mix, which is part of the reason why I think one of the keys rotation-wise for the season, and Chris Finch has his hands full in terms of juggling all this to make it work, but one of the things he should really do, in my opinion, is every minute that Townsend Gobert are on the floor, Mike Conley should be on the floor with them. Like that 
those three should be tethered. And you, you know, you can find time for Conley and just towns or Conley and just go bear. That's all fine. But you need someone to put this offense in order. We yes. saw we saw with D'Angelo Russell what happens if you don't have that. And I, I think Conley could be a, a big kind of, you know, skeleton key in terms of making some of that spacing stuff work. Yeah, I think this conversation reflects just the anguish of this team in the broader sense, if only because it seems like we're talking about all these things they need to do in order to make the two-center lineup work. And it can work. And as you mentioned, against certain teams, it might work more effectively, right? But it just seems like there's so much consideration into making this work it just overlooks the probably easier answer, which is that maybe we shouldn't be trying to make this work. Maybe we should just be moving Cat out of the way, getting more of a plug-and-play sort of stretch for 3 and D type, and then just allowing Anthony Edwards to just be incredible. Everything else seems, in my mind, at the very least, to slot in so much more easily that way. And I wonder if the Edwards, first and foremost, and some of the other guys might be thinking the same thing. And that, that would be the problem over the course of the season. If this doesn't click right away like it didn't last season, in large part because of Towns' injuries and all this other stuff, I do wonder if the griping starts and it has a trickle-down effect to the Edwards, to the McDaniels. Yeah, I, yeah. The, and Edwards is, again, he's so important to everything that they do because I think he needs to be that offensive floor raiser. It's not just going to be Cat and his shooting by itself. It needs to be Edwards turning into, quite frankly, just way better than he's been shown in the NBA so far, right? And for me, it's always going to start at, can this dude finally start getting to the line? Can he start drawing contact on his drives? Because he's always creating an advantage that way, but his finishing and his inability to get to the free throw line when he gets there has sort of been the, the the most limiting factor in my view. I think people thought his shot selection and his shooting range were going to be the things that limited him coming into the league. But it turns out, like, he's not optimizing his athleticism, his strength, his explosiveness in a way that, you know, a guy like John Morant, who's similar to him in explosiveness, does. Like, Ja lives at the free throw line. Ja's always drawing contact. Um, I think if 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 Anthony Edwards could start doing that, there all of this stuff just opens up because he just starts drawing way more help. Obviously, his offense becomes more efficient when he's not because he's getting to the line or he's taking layups, essentially. So, to me, that's, that's what's going to tie that whole thing together. How elite can this guy be with the ball in his hands? I, I don't want to zag too hard here, uh, but like, how sure are we that Anthony Edwards is that guy, right? Like a solo mm. act offensive player. I think he's very good. I don't very know. Very explosive. He hasn't shown that. He He's shown, I think, incremental progress as a playmaker. He did get to the line a little bit more, but he, in order to carry an offense on your own as a ball-dominant player, you just have to be more efficient than he's been so far. He's still very young. We're seeing flashes and bits and pieces and him starting to kind of put all that together. But this is where I get a little nervous about the cat trade options. If you're not trading Carl Anthony Towns for another star, if you're doing the kind of bits and pieces approach you talked about, Justin, like, you know, a stretch four, some rotation help, maybe some picks, I think you're putting Anthony Edwards... In, in a very precarious situation, like in a position where he's shouldering a lot all of a sudden. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not totally sold that he is that guy. 
how much of that is is it really like nature and nurture? Because on the one hand, it seems like everyone seems to identify this guy as the most talented guy in the room. I think Team USA was an yes. important data point in that regard. Like Steve Kerr is kind of full of shit in a lot of ways, but like I don't think he would be so effusive with praise with Edwards if he didn't actually believe it. Um, but clearly Edwards needs to take a step in terms of like being that guy and like knowing when to be that guy, in, especially in the course of a, a team with uh, a lot of talented players. It just seemed like he was more reticent to, to sit in the back and didn't press and didn't have a good feel for like the moment. Um, but how much of that is just his, him being clogged up with all these giant big men in the lane when this is a guy who should be attacking the, re- the rim all the time. And the problem with ta- having Towns there in the first place is like, if in order to optimize Edwards, Towns needs to get the fuck out of the way. But that also is the worst things for Towns because he's going to float because he wants to play like Anthony Simons. And so like if you're already <laughs> utilizing Towns mostly as as just like a, a top of the arc three point shooter who's just going to create stretch, like why not just like diversify the rest of your roster and empower Edwards to be that guy and at least give him the chance to be that guy. That I would think be the counter argument. I think we can sort of roll this into the swing player conversation because for me, Cat is the obvious candidate here as far as the Wolves swing player. He is the guy who makes their two-center thing work or not. I, I think it is going to ultimately work well enough. I don't think Gobert and Towns on the floor together are always going to be their best lineups, but in aggregate, it's going to make them a pretty good team. And having the flexibility of one or the other or sometimes both is going to make them a pretty good team. The ant part of it is where Cat has to be very flexible. And this is really kind of the cost of being a versatile player is if you can do lots of different things, teams are going to ask you to do lots of different things. When the reality for Anthony Edwards is Ant is going to do what Ant is going to do. No matter what role you try to put him in, he's going to try to score. He's going to pull up a lot. He's going to be a ball-dominant player. And so the responsibility is kind of incumbent upon Carl Towns to figure out what his lane is, where his gaps are, where where his avenues are to make an impact within this offense in ways that are not just stretching the floor. And I think there's been some promising signs in the preseason action so far of him flashing that sort of dynamism, granted preseason, but we'll take anything we can get with this team and showing kind of flashes of the potential of what those three guys can be on the floor together. Yeah, I think it's, it's got to be Cat. that's the swing guy because he's the one that missed all that time last year. True. Right. Um, and and it's and everybody attributed their season becoming a failure to that fact. Um, and also, this is not rumor, conjecture, innuendo. He was on a damn trading block this summer. Absolutely nobody bit. <laughs> Absolutely nobody bit on this guy, right? And so even the idea of a cat trade, it, it might sound good in theory. That there's just not that many homes for this dude right now. So he's gonna have to be. Uh, the swing person for this team this year. So we'll see. Well, I do think Rob brings up the key point, though. I do wonder if the Wolves are looking at him as the superstar that brings them to a next level, whereas the rest of the league is looking at him as maybe a rehab project, trying to bring out the star in him by putting him into a different context. And so just like the value seems to be off there, because you're right. First and foremost, the Wolves seem committed to making this work. They've talked all about, like, they recognize the window is right now in order to be the team that they are right now. And if anything, like, the finances also suggest that, like, this season really is the season they need to show that it works because the, the money is going to start piling up as soon as next season. Just cat 
Gobert, Edwards alone next season when Edwards' extension kicks in, $128 million. Jaden McDaniels also needs an extension. This team is getting like Conley and Anderson are free agents next summer. Like this is going to be a very, very expensive team in a market that typically does not pay that. And so if we're saying the number at number 18 in the power rankings is where we see the Minnesota Timberwolves. To me, that's not working. And so I think the trade is going to come eventually. And if anything, I, I might even be trying to get ahead of it right now, if possible. Can I, can I pitch you one that I've been percolating on? Sure. If you must. I, I feel like this is just like a long running series for me where I'm just trying to find Carl Anthony Towns a new home. Um, Cat to the Nets for Cam Johnson, which would have to be after December 15th, Royce O'Neal, and a future Suns first pick. First no. Pick. No. No. It's just, it's just Why not? It's spare parts. It's car, it's car tires. Like, this is, you know, you, you're kicking the tires. These are the literal tires that you're kicking. You know, <laughs> like, I, and again... And by the way, you talk about getting paid. Cam Johnson is paid now. You know, for the long term, right? Uh, I well, not not cat paid. To be fair, no, 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 not cat paid. But again, like I don't know, man. I I, I think the potential of what is there with cat, specifically on offense, um, and the fact that the potential of the pieces around him defensively can actually mask these things is something you got to see through. If all you're getting back is Cam Johnson and Royce O'Neal. I mean, come on. I love <laughs> I don't Cam. Think it's that bad. I love Cam Johnson, and I, I can't even talk myself into that. But no. wow. This to me gets at the question, right? Who, you know, Carl Anthony Towns is a shooting big who can post up, who can roll, who can do lots of different things. We know the flaws in his game as well. And certainly on defense, there are many of them. He has no defensive position. He has no There's defensive no position. There's no position on the floor that Carl Anthony Towns is able to play defensively. Correct. If, if that guy, the player Carl Anthony Towns is, even just on offense, is not a sufficient running mate for Anthony Edwards, what does the ideal running mate for Anthony Edwards look like? Like, who, who is that player? Is it another wing? Is it a guard who's going to take the ball out of his hands? Is it a big? Because I don't think you're going to find many bigs with skill sets that are better suited to match Edwards than Towns. Like, who is that guy? I was just going to say, I think they already committed to go bear as that guy. So I, I think that's why I'm thinking more spare parts, complementary players, because like you can't move go bear, or at least I'm assuming that he's just going to be that. So why not op- optimize like this team with go bear, like locking down the defense and thus Edwards would, would control the offense. But I'm, I'm saying even as a thought experiment, even like a pie in the sky it. option, we can have any star in the world come to our team to play with Anthony Edwards. What is the player type that we want? And that's where I struggle with him a little I, bit. I think a similarly sized wing scorer is somebody in the mold of the Clippers with Kawhi and Paul George, right? Like, you're constantly playing with four to five out. And so his lack of playmaking is not as, you know, pronounced in those lineups because the spacing is just there. The yeah. reads are just way more easier. They, they, they just are um, in that type of system. So that might be what the answer is. But that, like, hypothetical, like, these guys don't grow on trees. Yeah. Like, there's a reason why that's the most premier position within the league. Premium position is that, like, it, it's a rarity to have 
these six foot six, six foot seven guys who also handle it, who also shoot it, who also defend people. Like it's hard to get these dudes in yeah. your building. So I don't know. My mind jumped to Brandon Ingram, you know, Similar. someone who could sure. play make a little like a more of a playmaking Brandon Ingram, which seems like he's headed in that direction. Jalen Brown, the high class version. Yeah. I mean Tatum for that matter. But again, like you, you, these you guys swing are not at, on the table. Yeah. No, you yeah. swing at these We're talking players about top 30 players. And you end yeah. up with Cam Johnson instead, right? This this is how we get to that place. Like it, <laughs> t- teams are not trading those kind of ideal wing candidates. Okay. Um, all right, let's move on to the number 17 team on our list, the Indiana Pacers. I'll be honest, I think there's a lot of intrigue with this team, but there isn't a lot of tension. And by that, I mean, I kind of just assume this team is going to be pretty good mm-hmm. and has the potential to be top six, maybe, type of good in the Eastern Conference. And maybe there's like a plus or minus of like three, well, more minus three uh, spots in the standing. But other than that, I kind of think they are who they are. Rob, am I missing something about this team big picture? No, I I think that's a good way to lay it out because they don't have the best roster in the world. They don't have necessarily the the guys who are on the cusp enough to make them a a real threat to jump into the top of the East. But what they do have is a really defined style of play, a really defined philosophy of what they want to do. Stylistically speaking, every player on the Pacers is pulling in the same direction. And that's up the floor, faster, 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 faster at all times. They were already one of the fastest offenses in the league last season. And you have to think they're only going to turn it up more, getting Bruce Brown and Obi Toppin, two guys who are our full-court players coming into the team this season. So I think they're just going to be an absolute blast. And I think they're going to have a record that... I mean, they're going to be a winning team. Their record was suppressed a little bit by just like not really wanting to win that many games at the tail end of last season. So, and if you, Halliburton if you, getting hurt in the middle of it was a for big sure. factor. But so, if you think of them as a 35 win team who's going to add to that, I would say maybe bump that up to 38, 39 win team. And that's where you're starting from potentially. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I just love with Halliburton. Your half-court offense is always going to be in good hands. Like, they're going to be able to score pretty damn efficiently so long as that guy is on the floor in the half-court. And all of the things that we just mentioned as this go-go-go pace type of team, transition and, and those type of things, to add to that, like, that is so such an incredible foundation that so many teams just don't have. And again, that's because they have a dynamic person at the point of attack. You know, um, we talked about the Nets um, and, you know, I heard from a a few Nets fans like, how dare you think we're not going to? It's like you have some guys, you know, my man Bomani Jones would call them low spades for my spades players out there. Like (laughs) these are these are these are good players, but you need that Halliburton to supercharge what these guys are able to contribute. And so that's why I believe in what they do. They have the complimentary pieces and they have a guy that's going to consistently generate Really good offense for them. Now, you know, some people might say they have a bit of a glut at the two-guard position between, you know, Matherin and, and Buddy Heald, who is, you know, he's he's smarting for a contract again. Uh, and so, you know, we're seeing all the news reports about that kind of thing. But I just think the the, the, the logic of their team is so sound. Um, again, it's not the high end that we're talking about you know, Nuggets and Celtics and Bucks and that kind of thing. But 
as far as like on a night to night basis this season, they're going to be as tough as anybody. Yeah. It seems so rare these days, in part because there's just so much talent in the league that a yes. team decides like, we're just going to build everything around this one guy, right? And it's kind of why I liked what the, what the Blazers ultimately did with Scoot. They kind of put their foot in the ground and didn't accept like a Tyler Hero and all these other guys to end up in the same sort of situation that they had been in. The Pacers are similar where they recognize how great Halliburton was probably even before the trade and just built the roster to emphasize that greatness. And so you have a team that feels tailor-made to him pretty much like what, a year and a half after they traded for him? Like they they made this thing work very quickly. And so credit to them. And I know they're always kind of aspiring to be as good as possible as soon as possible. But just the collection of talent that and interesting guys they've been able to assemble has been pretty remarkable to the point where like, I don't know what the Knicks were thinking, just like dumping Obi Toppin, but he seems like the perfect fit as a guy who's going to catch like 90 lobs this Love year Obi. just from Halliburton. I think he's going to be really cool for them. He, he, to me, is kind of their swing piece. There aren't a lot of logical swing candidates for the Pacers for all the reasons we described. So like they kind of do. Too. <laughs> they're a young team that does mostly one thing. But Obi is the guy who just by the nature of his position is kind of a swing player. Like when you have a guy at the four who really runs the floor like Obi Toppin does, it's an accelerant for everything you do, right? Like increasingly we're seeing the four as a position that you're either getting spacing from it, you're getting pace from it, you're getting defensive versatility from it. We'll see like how many different things he's able to provide because to this point he's been a bit of a narrow player in terms of impact and skill set, but occasionally you'll see him hit corner threes. You'll see him like be a bit of more of a defensive presence. He needs to show a capacity to do a little bit more to be a full-time starter, but I love I love the fit there. I love the pickup, especially again given the cost and how how little it really took yeah. the Pacers to get into that. It's amazing how how little you can get a guy after Thibodeau decides he hates the guy's guts. Um, it's, it's really <laughs> incredible. But, you know, for me, the swing guy is, is Ben Matherin. Uh, again, he's a second-year guy. Of course, you know, those guys tend to improve markedly when they're good anyway on their rookie seasons. I just, you know, we just talked about Ant Edwards. He's sort of a baby version of Anthony Edwards, uh, a guy who can attack with athleticism. But also from the perimeter, he... He's a shot maker. He just is. Like, and he was doing it Sometimes. in very towards the end of the season, it got a little bit dicey. He did hit the yeah. proverbial rookie wall. There's no doubt about that. He shot out like a cannon and yeah. was, you know, rookie of the year chatter to start the season. But I think that's just normal for a guy who's never played 82 freaking games before, you know? So um, I'm not sure. too worried about the way that ended last year. I'm just looking at him to see if he can just assume that role as still catch-and-shoot guy. He was showing flashes of that. He was showing pull-up game flashes. And again, for a rookie, his free throw rate as a rookie was just off the charts for a guy his age at that position. So that's who I've got my my eye on. And of course, you know, my bias as he's a as he's a great Haitian, Haitian brother like myself. So, you know, it, it, it's all tying in, uh, Rob. Well, Justin, I know you wanted to talk about how Buddy Heald and Ben Matherin kind of fit together in the context of this team. Like, how, how do we want to set the stage for that? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the essential question is, is was pretty dicey in this one, but I did highlight Heald, if only because it seems like he is the one question mark going into the season. How much of that is because I think Ben Matherin is assumed to be in the starting lineup and Heald probably was relegated to a secondary role. 
on the one hand, healed probably one of the not probably is one of the best shooters in the NBA. Yeah. Unfortunately, I have the same problem that the Pacers have, kind of shoehorning him into other lineups because he does do that one thing very well, but obviously takes a lot away on the defensive end and and isn't the most just like happy to pass sort of player. Um, and so I don't know. I struggled coming up with healed destinations. Like I wrote down the Hornets, but then like you have him and Lamelo Ball in the backcourt, and that's probably just one of the 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 wonkiest uh, backcourts in basketball. I wrote down the Magic. I don't know. Does does anybody else have any good ideas? Well, there was a point at which he was kind of like making eyes over Twitter for the Mavericks or something like that. Like the, I, <laughs> Buddy Heald has been involved in so many trade rumors Contract at this point. Contract disputes, trade yeah. rumors. It's, it's really crazy. He's barely been in the NBA. It's so funny. But uh, to, he has kind of, in the grand scheme of things, not been in the NBA for that long. But when he has been in the NBA, specifically the last five seasons, Buddy Heald has started 78% of his games. So you can see why if your buddy healed, angling for a new contract, being moved to the bench, you would be thinking, this is not who I am. This is not who I have been historically. I, I think that conversation is interesting if kind of open and shut because I suspect Ben Matherin is going to start, is going to take that job, and is going to move buddy healed into a little bit more of a um, an expendable capacity for the Pacers. I think buddy healed is a perfectly useful player, especially as a shooter for Indiana. The question is, like, what do you want around the guys that you already have? Do you want more players who are going to help create space? Or do you want players who are going to exploit that space? And that's where Ben Matherin, like, he's just a more dynamic driver, a more dynamic guy off the dribble, a guy who is, as Watts pointed out, like, going to get to the free throw line because he creates contact. And so between him and Bruce Brown, Miles Turner, we have to note, just came off the best offensive season of his career, in part because he <laughs> was high, reading... Baby reading and reacting as well as he has ever done before, including like attacking closeouts and things like that. So I, I like that overall presence in the Pacers offense. And Buddy, for as useful as he is as a shooter, is just never going to give you that. Can I give you a Matherin stat here? Yes. Uh, so 5.8 free throws a game as a rookie, which puts him on an elite list since 2010. So 29-10. Uh, there are six other players who have done that. Tyreek Evans, who was a problem as a rookie, as we all know. He we were was, old enough to remember Tyreek Evans he as a problem. He was a problem. <laughs> Huffing emoji, big-time problem. Yeah. Blake Griffin, Joel Embiid, Luka Doncic, Zion Williamson, and Paolo Bancaro. Wow. And then, obviously, Ben Matherin. You know, I got to apologize, Justin. I wasn't familiar enough with your game when I was giving you shit about the existential questions. You've been in your stat head bag today. You've really been bringing, bringing out the data. I'm a real numbers guy, you know? That, just, that just is your role there. on this podcast. <laughs> it's the quant. <laughs> just, just in those spreadsheets, just grinding. Um, all right, last team on our list for this episode, number 16, the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, I have no fucking idea what this team is. <laughs> Does anyone? Is it really that complicated? I think if Zion Probably plays, not. if he stays on the floor, they're going to be good. They, they He is an elite elite upper echelon offensive player when he's on the floor. He's all NBA. He's all-star starter worthy. He's big time when he's on the floor. And the story of this team since he's been drafted there is that he cannot play. He never plays. And when he does play, they've been so freaking good, including last freaking season. 
when he was on the floor, they were good. We were talking about one seeds for these guys. Remember when, remember when these guys were headed for the one seed and the Lakers were headed for Wembenyama? Remember that two-week stretch where that was the chatter of this freaking team? And then, of course, it all fall, fell apart. And for the listeners at home, I'm looking through the, 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 the list, the, the spreadsheet that Justin put together for us. And... He has this David Griffin, president of basketball ops quote on Zion Williamson. And this quote just fucking floored me. Just absolutely took me out. The quote goes, this was the first summer where we've seen Zion take his profession seriously like that and invest in it off the court on his own in a way that I think is meaningful. End quote. Mm. What? His fifth NBA season. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. You know, and, yep. and again, just another thing. We talked about Carl Towns was on the block. Zion Williamson was on the freaking block this summer. He was. He was available to be traded for. And everybody was like, I'm not touching that dude with a 10-foot pole. He's unprofessional. He's constantly out of shape. Then, of course, there's the stuff that blew up on the internet, on Twitter. <laughs> you know, like, I don't think that's like, what Dave Griffin is talking about. No, I, I think teams were worried about that, though. That's true. I'm that's serious true. about the way that he conducts himself outside of the basketball court, right? It and didn't so, help. Yeah, it, it did not it help. It did not help his perception um, for potential shoot, suitors. So this is a big year for Zion. Um, I think if he plays and he's right, this team is going to be good. They're going to be a handful. They they might even be, you know, they might even be quote unquote dangerous to the to the top tier of the conference, right? But th- it's just such a huge if because it just literally never happened before. But that's what makes them tough to talk about. Like we have them rank 16th in our power rankings. They could easily be the second seeded team in the Western Conference this For season. Sure. It, it it would not shock me one bit. They proved last season they can be a pretty a pretty sufficient, pretty sophisticated defense if you're getting, you know, healthy seasons from both Zion and Brandon Ingram, who should be noted. Like Zion gets a lot of grief for his absences. Yeah, Ingram misses a lot of time yeah. too. So if you get both of those guys back on a full-time basis and you're able to replicate some of what made you an effective defense last season, that's an elite team. That that, that is the foundation for elite basketball. Can they do that? I don't know. And and to David Griffin's ultimate point, like I, I I can't remember a young star more deserving of that kind of call out than Zion in terms of his professionalism, his habits. Like you don't want to hold a guy's injury history against him when so much of it is just bad luck or just the way your body is laid out. But it may not be your fault when you hurt your knee, but it is your fault when you don't take your rehab seriously, when you don't do anything to actually strengthen your knee after the fact to prevent further injury, when you're not showing up and being a part of the team those are things that do come back to haunt you and I think can be held against you. And so we're, we're going to see who Zion Williamson is as a star, as an active NBA player, as a teammate. There's there's so much to figure out, but the high-end successful outcomes of all those things is the Pelicans are one of the best teams in basketball. I, I would stop short of giving David Griffin holding Zion accountable five years into his run. Like... Oh. I, maybe this this yeah. should have come a little sooner if you really want to lay down the law. And I think it's probably worth noting that the Pelicans also significantly restructured their med staff this year with Griffin suggesting that he did so after consulting some of the players. The med staff 
led by Aaron Nelson, the guy from the Suns who had the magic touch that helped them through so many seasons long ago that Griffin then brought into New Orleans to do so. And so like Griffin is to blame certainly for some of this, but obviously a lot of this is outside of your control. Um, well, look, just, just, I, you know, y'all know I hate giving a break to any freaking GM or management type, but I will say the David Griffins, if you will, of Zion Inc. Not great. <laughs> just leave it at that. Oh, you're saying the David Griffin <laughs> equivalents uh, yeah, within in Zion Zion's Inc. world. Yeah. Not sure. Not ideal. I don't think there are any winners here. Yeah. yeah. I, I, think it's a diff- <laughs> I think it's a difficult situation for, for everyone. But I, I think you're right. I think if Zion's out there, clearly they're going to have the type of juice that few teams can replicate. But we saw last season when he's not out there, s- the strains it puts on everybody else. Obviously, Ingram was also hurt, so that, that didn't help. But like CJ McCollum looked washed. He looked awful at times. The shot selection was was terrible <laughs> in certain situations. And it just seems like he is at the stage of his career where he works best compliment. as He's being kind of a tear, caretaker, picker spot mm-hmm. sort of player, being the number three in this team, trying breathlessly to, to inspire Zion, kind of failing at that, if we're being honest. I don't know if CJ has really provided the emotional uh, just ballast I think they were probably hoping for that really like whip Zion into shape. But... Uh, things fall in order without him when when he is in there when he's not there i think you're start you start to see sur- some of the seams start to show do you think he looked that washed he looked pretty bad at times especially early in the season he, he definitely had down moments I, I would say that's kind of the cj mccollum experience you know mm. he is an up and down player he's so reliant on his jumper that when it's not there especially when yeah. as you mentioned He's being forced to carry an outsized load for a majority of the season. He's dealing with some injury stuff. He's on a team that's just like a lot of role players when Ingram and, and Zion also, aren't out there. There's there's not a lot of playmaking when you no. don't have Zion creating all this gravity for you. CJ McCollum in the best of times is nobody's idea of some pure point guard. No. Table setting, passing people the ball. That's never been he, his thing. And he had so, thumb surgery too. We should we yes. should be Frank and about so I don't that. So maybe that on, I don't want to dump on McCollum. Like, even when they brought him in, it wasn't to be nobody's savior. It wasn't to be the focal point of anybody's offense. It was like, this is, you know, a professional scorer, a veteran, yeah. high-character guy. That's what he was supposed to be. He wasn't supposed to be saving anybody's season. When yeah, this he is got a wrinkle, a wrinkle we're adding to what we already have. Yeah. And I thought even, even within the capacity he played last season. He kept their turnovers down. He helped make the Pelicans solvent. He helped make it to the... Look, for as, few, for as few games as Zion and Ingram played, the Pelicans were two wins away from a top six seed. I'm not saying that's all CJ McCollum. Like, they have a good team. They have a good supporting cast. The games that Zion and Ingram did play obviously matter a ton, but he did enough, caretaker or not, to help get them in the mix. It was a really small sample though, right? The games that they did have with the three of them all together. Oh, no, no. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about overall, the whole season, this is a team that won 42 games. Right. You're right. Which is a 500 team (laughs) that didn't get into the plan or got into the plan but didn't get to the playoffs. But to your point about the small sample, to date, Zion, Ingram, CJ McCollum have been on the floor for a grand total of 172 minutes together. This is why you see a team like the Pelicans roll into a new season with basically the same roster. Like, I don't know why you would make, 
move heaven and earth to There's like no change, to, yeah. change what you don't even know that you have yet. So hopefully this is the year we finally know what the Pelicans have. And hopefully, hopefully those guys can stay healthy enough to not only show us that, but continue to add to their games too. Because I mean, God knows the sky is the limit with a healthy Zion. Yeah, well, that, that's a good segue to talk about the rest of the health concerns with this roster because Zion is presumably healthy right now. Um, look, just did the whole thing where he like looked ripped in his jersey at media day and then had the audacity to like just like people questioning him. He was like, oh, you know, got all huffy about that. So that's always fun. Um, <laughs> Trey Murphy out 10, 10 to 12 weeks with a meniscus injury. Obviously a big bummer considering he seemed to be on the verge of a breakout. Uh, Alvarado and Nance also have uh, injuries that will probably keep him out of training camp. Alvarado seems to be a continuation of the stress reaction that he had last year. Um, Nance had to get a uh, biologic injection to stimulate healing in his ankle, which is never a good sign. So like, yes, I agree with you that if Zion's there, it solves a lot of problems. But a lot of the guys that they had been brought in to round out the rest of this team also struggling. And I think the big concern point is just the amount of shooting on this team, especially if, if Brandon Ingram is going to continue to be reluctant to actually take those threes. Um, it really is CJ and then nobody else. You brought in Jordan Hawkins, obviously NCAA champion, leader, and future superstar in this league. Um, but Herb Jones hasn't been able to shoot despite like early returns seem uh, suggesting that he might be able to. There's just like, there isn't shooting on this roster. And so Zion really needs to create the openings for that. We need an intervention for Brandon Ingram at this point. Like the Pelicans coaches have tried. He's, he's been publicly shamed into trying to take more threes. W- what do we have to do? And, and hopefully the answer is have a healthy team out there around him where there's just more catch-and-shoot opportunities. But he is one of those guys who, for whatever reason, wants to wants to take that dribble, wants to take that kind of evaluative step as soon as he catches the ball. Like, he, he just is not a catch-and-release guy, despite the fact that he's a very good catch-and-shoot shooter. Yeah, I would guess you'll see more Ingram on the ball, CJ off, and then maybe even like a, a Ingram Zion pick and roll that would seem to also satisfy the potential clash that exists or whatever you however you want to describe it between Ingram and Zion in the first place. Yeah, Zion's got to be a role man too, right? Um, I think a lot of a lot of times when he has played, he's been the guy initiating pick and roll, which he's been really good at. <laughs> you know, like, he's really good at that, too. But I think as a role man, he presents a lot of problems if he's actually committing himself to setting, like, legitimate screens and, you know, creating some advantages for the guys around him. Um, yeah, and CJ, again, to his credit, he's made himself into a, a credible volume three-point shooter. That wasn't the case early in his career. He was a, a mid-range assassin. So, yeah, I think these are things... I don't think they're going to have any problems scoring on people if Zion and Brandon Ingram play, man. It's just not going to be an issue. That's where it gets interesting. And look, again, Zion is as easy a swing player as you could possibly pencil in on any of these teams, whether he plays or not, how he plays, what positions... As we're saying, on ball, roll man, whatever you want to do. These are the things that make the Pelicans so interesting in some ways. They have so many options on how they want to play. But in particular, you know, we, we talked about Larry Nance having this injury. 
where you want to play Zion positionally and to what extent you want him to play the five next season, which is something that apparently they're going to do a little bit more, is something I'm certainly monitoring, especially as it relates to the Pelicans defense, because that was a team that was successful defensively last season because they did two things. They dominated the glass and they forced a lot of turnovers. And that was informed by their bigs. When Valanchunas was out there, they worked teams on the glass. When Nance was out there, they switched. They had a different style of play defensively. They were able to pressure the ball. Zion doesn't do either of those things. And so putting him at the five unlocks a lot offensively. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of Zion at the five, guys. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, That's well, thing that but putting him at the four creates problems, too, for your team. It does. I mean, In a way... He, he hasn't gotten quite the same heat just because he hasn't been on the floor and certainly had the playoff exposure, but he has a little bit of the Carl Anthony Towns, Towns problem too. Defensively, yeah. What is Zion's How defensive many teams position? Have this problem nowadays where they have this just offensively let's, gifted this, big man that if they have to play in the four and protect him with the five, but, then but it creates Zion, all these like sort of roster on. problems. As Zion a result of is so strong, has such quick feet. Is so exp- there's no reason he actually can't be good at defense. There's no actual reason behind it besides yet? the fact that <laughs> well, I think it's the David Griffin stuff about his just lack of commitment to professionalism and understanding like defense is part of your job too, bro. Being in shape is part of your job too. You know, conducting yourself as the leader of the franchise is part of your job too. I think the defense ties into that, but I don't think he's physically incapable of it. No. Yeah, he was supposed to be coming out of Duke just like a, a world beater on both ends. Of but the he's a lot less athletic than he was at Duke now. That's as true. crazy but as true. that is to say. But still mobile laterally. Like, he should yeah. still be able to hang in some of these matchups in ways that he hasn't shown that he can yet. I just can't wait to see how it all comes together, right? There's all these different versions of the Pelicans, not just in terms of who's on the floor and who's not, but who they could be versus who they realistically are versus the, the team that like we, we're like imagining in terms of these wonky combinations. Like Again, this is a team that in dealing with these injuries early in the season, like if Jose Alvarado can't play to start the season, who is New Orleans' backup point guard? Because they don't seem like they want to play Kyra Lewis at all. Maybe maybe Brandon Ingram is the backup point guard and you're playing these huge lineups. And it, it's kind of a similar thing with, with if Nance is out and missing significant time or, or certainly with Trey Murphy missing significant time. The lineups are going to be weird and they could be weird in ways that are very difficult for opponents to deal with. But first and foremost, the Pelicans need to figure out what works and are, are any of those combinations actually solvent? All right, let's uh, let's wrap this episode there. Uh, that is it for part two. We will be back for part three. So technically, part two, part B, uh, in your feeds later today. Uh, thank you to our Water Oil Campo on production. Uh, thank you to Ben Cruz. Uh, we'll see you hopefully in a couple minutes in the next feed. See ya. Must be 21 or older and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat 
in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.NET in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.